I brought, a, I brought this up this morning just so you can spend the entire time wondering what it is. Um, I will get to it at the end. Uh, if you're a guest with us today, my name is Pastor Mark, one of the pastors here. Really excited to have you worshiping with us. And now I would like to go to the scripture. I invite you to go with me to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, we're going to be looking at verses 19 to 24 as we return again to our series, The Upside Down Life on the Sermon on the Mount of Jesus in Matthew 5 through 7. We're going to be reading verses 19 to 24 in a little bit, but first I wanted to just give um, a few practical insights about finances that various speakers have shared with us. well-known economists like Bob Hope, Bill Murray have contributed to these. A bank is a place that will lend you money if you can prove you don't need it. Think about that. If you think nobody cares whether you're alive, try missing a couple of payments. The best way to teach your kids about taxes is by eating 30% of their ice cream. Bill Murray contributed that one. A study of economics reveals that the best time to buy anything was a couple of years ago. Every morning I look at the Forbes list of the wealthiest Americans. If I am not on the list, I go to work. Our sermon today will focus on money, so I thought I would keep it light as long as possible. We're going to be looking at this passage, which actually is an incredibly exciting passage, as it challenges us again, as all of the Sermon on the Mount is to make Jesus central in our lives. The context of this sermon is following up three sermons that were presented, um, uh, basically talking about a triad of lessons that Jesus gives in the beginning of Matthew 6 on our motives. And what he does is take the three most uh, sacred uh, or the pillars of spirituality for the Jews of his day, uh, generosity, prayer, and fasting. And in each of them, he has been talking about the fact that it isn't only what you do, it is the reasons you do it, that we can be self-absorbed even in the best of our activities. He talks about motives and what drives us. Now he goes into two sections, beginning in verse 19 of chapter 6, in talking about choices, significant choices that we need to make in our lives if we are going to live the upside-down life, the kingdom life Jesus offers. He's going to tell us here in verses 19 to 24 to choose your treasure, money or God. The second choice he's going to present to us next week will be to choose your outlook, worry or trust. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount is providing a corrective teaching, but it is not a corrective teaching designed to to beat us up and to rebuke us and to convict us primarily. It is primarily to correct us, to restore us to life as it ought to be. Jesus is continually presented in the Sermon on the Mount, life as God designed human life to be lived, 
Life as it ought to be. Life as God designed human experience to be. Life that is lived with and through God. One of the most subtle substitutes to living with God as the center of your life is presented here in Matthew chapter 6, verse 19 to 24. A parallel teaching is a lesson that Jesus gave in Luke chapter 12, where he talks about being on your guard. Here's what he says. Watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed, for a man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. It's an interesting statement. A man's life doesn't consist in the abundance of his possessions. I remember growing up as a kid, and there was a game that was out that was called the Game of Life. It was a board game. Many of you will remember it. Some of you may have had it as kids, and even if you're younger. But you basically got this little car, and you got these little sticks that you, you put in, and blue was for guys, and pink was for girls. I, I think that's how it went. And you could have more kids, and, and, and you went around the board, but the entire way that you won the game of life was to end up with the most money. That life was defined by the abundance of what you had. You wanted life if you had the most. And Jesus says, man, be on your guard. For a man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. We come now to Matthew chapter 6, and Jesus is giving the same lesson, but it's broadened. And in this passage, Jesus is presenting three lessons on valuing the right treasure in our lives. Now, it's interesting that in Luke chapter 16, it's recorded that Jesus gave this same talk on another occasion. And in that one, there were a bunch of Pharisees there, and this was their response to this sermon we're looking at this morning. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed Jesus. I'm hoping that's not the takeaway we're going to have this morning. As we come to Matthew chapter 6, verse 19 and 24, he's speaking to us, all of us, as he talks about the beautiful privilege of having our value be in the true treasure. I'd like to read this passage for you. Matthew chapter 6, verse 19 to 24, here's what Jesus says. Again, you've heard that it w- excuse me, I read the wrong... That's Matthew chapter 5. Lay, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Let's pray. Lord, we gather here in Mount Laurel. We gather here in Collingswood. We gather here in our homes watching online or on a vacation. And Lord, we ask you to be our teacher. 
God, there's nobody, there's not one of us that doesn't sense the pull of having our life defined by stuff. So, Lord, instruct us this morning of the beauty of having our lives defined when we value the true treasure. Teach us what that means and change us by it, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Three lessons Jesus gives about valuing the right treasure in our lives. The first thing we notice is that what you value is what your heart loves. He says this in verses 19 to 21, and he talks about uh, making your treasure treasures on earth. Laying up means to store up, and, and literally it means to invest in. That becomes a priority. You're gathering, you're gaining it, you're putting your energy there, you're, you're finding your security there. And he basically says, where do you have your treasure? What is the thing that is compelling you? Is, is it your 401k, your, your home, your car, your funds? And he says, don't be ultimately invested in those things. Why? Well, he gives practical reasons. They won't last. They're, they're losable. They are things that you can't protect ultimately. Uh, if nothing else, you won't take them with you. He says the moth and rust can, can destroy them. Well, the moth would basically eat much of the thing that they uh, would find pride in would be if they had luxurious garments. The word rust is actually the word to eat, and it, it probably shouldn't be translated rust, which is a little too narrow. It, it can mean that, but it also can mean uh, anything that is, that is eaten, that is devoured. And the idea here is whether it's crops or it's metals that are corroded, uh, but something that can be lost. The volatility of the market just reminds us that things are, things are not necessarily always sure. And he says, why do you love these things? They can't be counted on. There is something that will never be lost and can always be counted on that should be your ultimate treasure. Now, he's not talking about amount. He's talking about affection. He's not saying you shouldn't invest in a 401k. You shouldn't be, hey, you can't have nice clothes or he, he, you can't have a nice home. He's not saying, the issue is, where is your heart? And he says, because where your heart is, that is what your true treasure is. So it's not primarily, it's not a focus about, should I have any of this? It's ultimately is, what do you love most? What are you devoted to? We'll see that more as we go through this study. He compares that with treasure in heaven. Now, what does it mean to have your treasure in heaven? That you're, you're investing in heavenly treasures. Well, one of the primary principles of Bible study when you're trying to figure out what a, what a concept means is to find out how it's used in other places. The most significant place is the one that is in your immediate context because you find out this is what the author was referring to and what God was saying through the author. In Matthew chapter, six, Matthew chapter 5 and 6 in the Sermon on the Mount, the word heaven has already been used 14 times. And it's been used in two ways, and I think it beautifully pictures what is being talked about, about having our treasures, our ultimate investments in heaven. 
The word is first of all used of the kingdom, the father, excuse me, the kingdom of heaven. Jesus talked about the superior value of this as being our treasure. Here's what he says in Matthew chapter 13, verse 44 and 45. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. And again, The kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of the great, one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. He says, the kingdom of heaven is what we invest our lives in. The kingdom of heaven is the kingdom that Jesus brought to earth, offers to us. It is those that have embraced him as Lord and Savior of their lives. He's talking about investing your life in the work of the kingdom, investing your life in as a member of that kingdom, serving it, serving to the glory of Christ in that kingdom. He says, invest your life in those things. The other way heaven is used in Matthew 5 and 6, prior to this time, six times, is the term father in heaven. He constantly says, your father in heaven will reward you. Your father in heaven is watching. Your father in heaven is present. He's saying, invest in That which delights the one who's watching you, who's doing life with you, investing in that which pleases the Father. The goal is to enjoy and please Him. The consuming passion of your life, He's saying, the joy of your life is to know and glorify your Father and to invest in His work. This is what it means to invest in the treasure of heaven being your treasure. For where your treasure is, he says in verse 21, is where your heart will be also. Now, of course, now we need to put a little shoes to this. So, the question is, what do you love? What are you devoted to? This is the whole thing he's saying in verse 21. Because, I mean, if, if what you love, if what you're devoted to, if what you're investing your life in, it's your focus, it what keeps you, you, you alive and keeps you moving... It's the accumulation of things, uh, the, 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 the safety and security that is found there. He says that is your consuming treasure. On the other hand, if it's your father and his work and, and, and the establishment of his son's kingdom in the world, then you are investing in that which he says is the enduring kingdom. So what is it that lights your fire? Is the foundation and driving reality in our lives? I was 28 years old. The first time I ever went into my dad's office at what was then RCA and eventually is now Lockheed Martin wasn't keeping me out. I mean, I don't think he was ashamed of having me there, but it just never had had me come over into security. He had always been involved in naval defense companies, but he brought me in, and I knew my dad was, uh, had a significant role there. My father was a wonderful follower of Christ, by the way. He got saved uh, well into his, well, his early adulthood, after he was married, just about time he had me, I think he was terrorized. Um, and, 
But I was there, and, and while security checks were happening, he had to come all the way down from the top floor and get me and bring me up. And while I was there, I was just sort of hanging over to the side, and I noticed this, this wall plaque. And this wall plaque was a, uh, a description of the mucky mucks of the company, and, and particularly of, of the plant here in Morristown. And to my amazement, my father's name was very prominently displayed as a direct report to the general manager of the entire operation. I had no idea. I, I just, for, it was just surprising to me. We got taken up, we went up, and we, we got on the fourth floor, which happened to be the, the, the primary movers. And I went in my dad's office. We're sitting there, and a guy came in, knocked on the door, came into my dad's office, and uh, honestly, the guy intimidated me. I, I just, there are just some people that have a presence. This guy had a presence, and I thought, oh my God, this, oh my goodness, this, this has got to be the, the, uh, the, the, the guy. Well, it didn't turn out to be the guy. It was a guy that reported to my dad, and he's apologizing. I'm like, what in the world? I sass my father all the time. <laughs> I went through this whole moment, but I've been telling my father for years, you know, as I remember as a tiny teenager, he didn't understand the real world, you know, blah, blah, blah. I'm looking at this, I wonder what this guy would think. He's not saying that to my father. So, again, my dad then said, look, I, I, you know, we talked for a while in his office, and he said, I want to take you down to the factory, and he takes me down to the factory, and we get down there, and people are coming up to me, and, and when they find out I'm... I'm Gene Willie's son. They said, your dad's the only guy that from the fourth floor that ever come, or whatever it was, I don't remember, it was third or fourth. He, he, he's the only guy that ever comes through here. And uh, so we're, we're meeting um, all the people that are putting little circuit boards together, I think that's what they're called, and, and doing all this work. And, and uh, he's introducing me to everybody by name. I just, I, I was, it was weird. And he finally brought, he said, I want you to meet somebody. He takes me over to this, to this kid. He's probably in his early 20s. And he introduces me enthusiastically. And he says, you know, here, here. Um, so-and-so just won an award for um, the, his, his effectiveness in putting these little boards together, his accuracy. And he says, this is my son, Mark. Would you tell him, you know, how you do that? And this guy turned out to be a believer, and he goes on, he said, before I ever start a circuit board, I lay it down in front of me, and I talk to Jesus, and I said, Lord, help me to do this in a way that honors you. Give me recall, give me ability, because I want to I help this company succeed, but most of all, I want to do everything I do here to the glory of Jesus Christ. The guy just lit my dad's fire. There were so many other stories I could tell about this. This was not shocking to me because it fit my perspective of my dad. But I want to tell you, I came out of there, you know, I was just revisiting this in the last couple of weeks as I was thinking about this sermon, and I just, I came out of there absolutely convinced of this. What my father loves is Jesus Christ. It's the glory of Christ. He doesn't, he's not devoted to the fact and finding his joy in the fact that he reports to the top guy 
Not that he has impressive people reporting to him. Not that he's got this influence. My father loves Christ. Jesus is saying to us here, What would the people in our lives that know us best say, lights are fire? You may love golf. That's great. But if that's what lights your fire in the eyes of other people, you may love your job. You may love your family. But Jesus is saying, where's your heart? What's the, the thing that just your, your life is lighting up about? He says, because that's your treasure. And your treasure can be the, the kingdom of heaven. It can be the father of heaven. I hope it is, he says. Because that's what is the design for the people of my kingdom. The second thing he tells us about our values, and I'll tell you the first two are longer than the third, just so you don't panic, (laughs) is found in verse 22 and 23. What your value is, is where you set your sights. Verse 22, the eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? The eye was viewed, first, what it means. The eye was viewed as the means of light getting into the person. Basically, it says if if your eyes are looking at the right stuff, if if they're focused the right way, what you're going to do is you're going to take in things that are going to bring light into your life, into your interior life. There's going to be health. If you're, if you're focused on the wrong things, if you're fixated on the wrong things, it's going to take in not enough light and there's going to be darkness and, and it's going to be unhealthy in the interior life. Now, it's in the context of talking about money. And the accumulation of stuff. Now, we get this visual, right? The idea of eyes. I mean, I remember watching cartoons, and we'd have these kind of visuals. Now, what is it saying this person values? They're excited about money. I mean, they're just looking, and it's lighting up. And what Jesus says is inside, they're going to be darkening their interior soul life. The, all, the eye is all about where you set your sights. Arthur Mummond and his wife lived on Long Island in the early 20th century. They lived among fairly affluent neighbors. And as he described it, life for us was a constant struggle of trying to live far beyond our means in our endeavor to keep up with the well-to-do class. Eventually, Arthur parlayed his own life experience into the development of a comic strip. And the comic strip he actually got sold to Joseph Pulitzer's New York uh, World uh, newspaper in New York City. And it depicted the attempts of Olysseus and Clarice McGinney's attempts to live comparatively with their neighbors. There was a phrase that Arthur Mammond uh, embraced 
as an expression that has worked its way into contemporary language. You have all heard it. He talked about the McGinnis's attempt to keep up with the Joneses. We all get it. We all live with the struggle of comparativeness. We can set our sights on keeping up with others, comparing ourselves. We can set our sights on our own financial goals and a life of ease and comfort. But this passage is saying, if you belong to Christ, you're called to set your sights on the glory of God and the service of God. Now, we see how our values are played out in practical life. If your value which I certainly hope a high value for you, is your family. When you have a job offer come, let's say you're offered a position, it would require you to move, but it's more, more pay, it's a better position, it's, it's a career move for you. But you have a child with a rare disease. And you know that living in the Philly area, there happens to be a particular hospital with a particular department that is unique in the entire United States. And your child is regularly going to that special department because they are the best specialists among the only real specialists in the country to care for your child's disease. It's likely that if your value is your family and you value the care of your family, you will make the decision to turn down that opportunity out of concern for your child, right? And that's commendable. We agree with it. We endorse it. But quite honestly, a lot of your neighbors would do the same thing that have nothing to do with Jesus Christ. That's not really what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is saying this, how much do you value me? Now, you could say, well, it's because of my value of Christ that I value my child. I get it. But let me try to illustrate it like this. That same job comes, and that opportunity to move comes. If our eyes are fixated on Christ, we will likely also ask questions and make determinations based on questions like this. I may need to turn down this sales job, which pays me more, because I've already seen that I can't trust myself in a hotel room on the road that much with the visuals that will be available to me and the TV and the internet that is there when nobody else will know. I'll turn down the lucrative offer because I have a ministry to my co-workers for Jesus in the job I have now. Maybe I'll ask the question, I need to turn, should I turn down that offer because I'll not be able to continue in my small group that has absolutely revolutionized my passion for Jesus Christ. I'm not saying to any of those questions you should automatically say, I shouldn't take the job, but I am saying, Will we ask those questions? Will we say, I value Christ and the glory of Christ above everything else. It's the number one priority. 
that I use to determine the next steps in my life. It's above my career. It's above my position. It's above my affluence. It's above the accumulation of stuff and and a life of ease. And why it matters is told us in the next verse. If your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? Now, what is he talking about when he says the darkness? What's the darkness in, inside in our interior life? I think a parallel passage is 1 Timothy 6. Let me just read it to you quickly. Big passage. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we can't take anything out of the world. But if we have goods and clothing with these, we'll be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through that, this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. The darkness, I think, is described here in phrases like this. They fall in temptations and snares. Senseful, senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Through this craving, people have wandered away from the faith and stabbed themselves with many pangs. Now that is more extreme darkness, but he says this is what happens if we are driven, if our eyes are fixated in the wrong place. Even though we know Christ, we name the name of Christ and are members of his kingdom. And he says, many have wandered from the faith and stabbed themselves with many pangs. But the darkness is also something else in this passage. See, Paul is writing a rebuttal to teachers in the section right before that in 1 Timothy 6 that were saying, godliness, let me get the exact phrase, godliness is a means to gain. In other words, Follow God because that's where you'll get your money. It is an ultimate first century prosperity gospel that that do this and God will abundantly bless you financially. And Paul says, that's not, no, that isn't the gain. The, 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 The focus is not getting money. The great gift of godliness, he says, is not financial gain. The great gift of godliness is contentment. That you don't have to be driven. Prosperity gospel stirs up discontent. He's saying godliness is the gift. Excuse me. Contentment is the gift of godliness. We live in a culture that encourages you to define yourself by your financial position. Your status, your success, your security. But you are not what you make. You are not where you live. You are not your position in your company. You're not what your portfolio is. And the degree to which you are defining, defining yourself by your position, your income, your, is the degree to which darkness will seep into your life in which you're fixated on something that he says is unhealthy to your soul, to the interior life. And he says, yeah, there's temptations that come, there's snares that come, but he says also, you will find yourself discontent. He's not just talking to rich people, of course, right? He's talking to everybody. Everybody. 
We can, we can be in any financial situation and be fixated on either what I have and, and it's what I, what I depend on or what I don't have and I need to have. But he said, There's, that's not where your treasure to be. He says, you'll, you'll find yourself never satisfied because you'll always be looking to be a little more secure. And Paul said, the, the author of Ecclesiastes says it this way in chapter 5. The one who loves money, same expression used in 1 Timothy 6, is never satisfied with money, and whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with income. All right, that's the darkness. That's the darkness that comes in when, when we're fixating on the wrong thing. So what happens with the light? What happens when we fixate on the right thing, God and his purposes in our life, and glorifying him? What brings this, this light? Well, he says, what comes with the light is contentment. The godliness with contentment is great gain. Rudyard Kimpling was speaking to the graduating class of McGill University. And he said, one day you'll meet a man who doesn't care much for wealth or fame, and then you will realize how poor you are. Jesus is saying, that's rich. Everybody's trying to get more to be content. He says, you don't have to have more to be content if your treasure is in the right place. So how do you keep your eyes from being focused on money and greed? I personally believe one of the gifts of tithing and giving regularly to the work of the Lord is that it helps curtail our eyes being fixed and motivated by greed. You entrust yourself to the Lord by saying, Lord, you own it all. And I am giving this portion of it to you. The, the practical principle Old Testament was 10%. Maybe you're not giving anything. Well, I don't know that you're going to tomorrow start giving 10%, but I believe you need to start giving. What it does, and what giving always is, is this word is used in the New Testament and the Old Testament. It says, give the first fruits. The first fruits just means you gave the first part to the Lord. You made sure his got taken care of. It was not because he has that, and now I got mine. No, it was a way of saying, Lord, this, this harvest that we have... It's all yours, and all that we are getting and all that we're going we're gonna to use is to be used to your purposes, but we are acknowledging you own it all by giving you this part. You rarely see someone who is regularly given faithfully and generously who is consumed with greed. Usually greed, greed is the thing that keeps us from giving. It helps us to not be fixated in a misplaced way. The third thing, last thing, what you value is what you'll serve. And Jesus says here in verse 24, for where, uh, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. It's interesting, Jesus is not talking about employers here. I mean, you can serve two employers, right? You can have a full-time job and a part-time job or three part-time jobs. You got to... But an employer is not the same as a master because a master is absolutely ruthless 
in getting his. And basically what he's saying is you can't really be completely under the authority of one thing or another. There is going to be someone who is going, especially in times of crisis, when finances are short, where is it going to be? Where are you going to cut corners? In, in all realms of life, he's saying you'll be serving one or serving the other. It's interesting. He talks about serving money. We tend to look at money as serving us, but most of us struggle not being under the servanthood to money. And it is a t- tyrannous master. It's interesting in this passage that Jesus is basically deifying money. I was struck, and I did a series years ago called American Idols. And I was struck as I had studied through the scriptures that there are three things that an idol has. Three things I give to an idol that I should give to God. And if you remember them, which probably you don't, but I'll say them. We love something more than we love God. That's exactly what he talks about in the first three verses here. Where your treasure is, there's your heart. The second thing is we, we serve something more than God. That's exactly what he's talking about here in the last part. It's our master. The third one is we trust in it more than God. And I would say it to me that being fixated on the thing is, is because it's what we hope in. It's what we're depending on. It's what we're trusting in. He is defining in this passage money as a potential rival as deity in our lives. And the strike, it, it's interesting how Paul says it. In these two passages, in Ephesians chapter 5, everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is greedy, and, and the parenthesis section is Paul's, that is an idolater. He says the same thing in Colossians 3, verse 5. Greed, which is idolatry. Colossians chapter 3, verse 5. It is placing that entity, it is personifying it as an idol in our lives. And the striking thing, he says, and nobody, no one gets a pass on this, that everyone is capable of having their loyalty be deflected from God because no one is capable of having two ultimate loyalties. So where are we this morning? Are you continually discontent? Is it largely about money? Are you continually frustrated, continually discontent? Do you find yourself continually, constantly worried about money? Do you find yourself unwilling to give? It may be because the wrong treasure is being deified in your life. So, Mark, what now? Maybe you're here and... For some of you in this room, here in Mount Laurel, here in Collingswood, here in your own home or at the shore or vacation place, you're saying, oh God, what am I doing? I mean, I I just, what am I doing? 
And you're convicted that your value, you've been living with values that are screwed up. You actually have two responses to this message. One, maybe you're convicted that you're living with values or that you're sort of screwed up in your heart outlook right now or your practices. The second thing, response to this message, is you feel like you want to punch me in the mouth for making you feel so uncomfortable. You came to church to to feel good. Well, this is my suggestion. I would suggest that you resist the second feeling. (laughs) And it's the feeling of conviction I want to speak to. A number of years ago, I put together, I had studied a couple years the book of Proverbs, and I just started putting something together in our family, and I ended up doing it with about 35 men in our church, um, these family nights we did. But one of the things we did was we put together a board, which was a, a board game. We had cards and all kinds of stuff, and it was on the book of Proverbs. And basically, the idea was you go down the path of wisdom is the plan, the hope, um, I don't know, I, <laughs> not that this is that much you really want to see. Then there was the path of folly, which it says is a crooked path and twisted, and there are all these things along the path of folly. Here's the deal. It's really easy, and these are all snares that lead to the path of folly. It's easy to get on the path of folly. It's easy to feel, I, I've been walking on the path of folly for a long time. Talking about money, I've been on that path of folly a long time, even though I'm a Christian. So what's the resu- response? What do you do? You say, oh my goodness, I'm all the way over here. I gotta start climbing back. Oh, oh. No, that's not what the Bible says. The Bible has this beautiful thing called repentance. You say, God, I, yeah, I just, yeah, I didn't see it. Yeah, I am. My, my eyes are fixated on, on this. It's why I'm all upset. It's why I'm consuming. It's why I'm not giving. It's why I'm blah, 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 blah. Here I am. And I, I mean, I'm, I, mean my, I wouldn't want anybody to know the place money has in my life. Well, God doesn't say, okay. Then let's start the slow walk home, buddy. No. He says, man, I've been waiting for you. Girl, I've been waiting for you. Say, Lord, I'm sorry. (laughs) I want to love you most. I want to be fixated on you and your purposes. I want people to look at my life and say, there's a guy. There's a girl that is absolutely in love with Jesus Christ. It's the consuming reality in his life. And even if people say, you know, the guy's a nut, but man, he loves Jesus. We get there by just saying, Lord, restore that to me. And he says, okay, here we go. Boom. We're back on the path of wisdom. There may be things he leads you to do. There may be changes he'll make you, have you make. But you don't have to say, I am hopeless now. You move from here or here or here or here. You're immediately back on the path of wisdom simply by repentance. It's what grace is all about. Jesus. 
Jesus is taking this whole sermon to do one thing. He's saying, I want to tell you about life as it's designed to be lived. You were never designed to do life on your own. You were never designed to, to, to pursue things in your own reason. Lean into me. Trust in me. Watch what I do. And you'll find there's a peace. There's a joy. There's a contentment. That is found with no other deity in your life. Wherever you are this morning, whatever God's saying to you, if he's asking you to say, Lord, I'm, I'm, I'm recommitting again, I'm, I'm offering myself again, hear that still small voice. Lord, we come to you today. Thank you that you want us. Thank you that you pursue us. Lord, may our treasure that lights our fire and leads our eyes be you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Now go in peace to love and serve and enjoy.